0: My wife, Marcella, retired from Box of Crayons about three years ago, and she spent a bit of time just feeling her way into what retirement means. I mean, what do you do? And what does what you do say about who you are? But a year or so ago, she totally found her groove. She's become part of a brilliant group of smart, funny, make your path in this world, women, and she's having a great time. I mean, Seriously, I have to schedule in time to see her. And when I do, I can sometimes see her looking at me and going, I don't know, you're not the best offer I've got on the table right now. Anyway, I do look on with a little envy. I mean, I have people I see and I talk to and I hang out with. I don't have this thing that she has, which is community. I mean, at mbs.works, we're building a digital community, people doing worthy goals. It's called the conspiracy. But Ainsley's doing all the heavy lifting there. So, where do you find your people, and how do you gather them? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. And today you get to meet a longtime friend of mine, Pam Slim. She's a fellow author. Her new book is The Widest Net, and I think it's her best yet. And she's also a coach. But I think her real genius is that she is a community builder. She runs a community center called Main Street Learning Lab at K. I'll talk about that word in a minute. In her hometown in Mesa, Arizona. And it supports small businesses, particularly for marginalized people. Now that word K is a Dine or a Navajo word meaning a system of kinship. And it describes the feeling you have when you are deeply connected to others and you understand and you value your roots and Pam's roots in community building run deep.
1: I think it's always was in me. I saw it in my dad. So my dad has always been the biggest inspiration. I wrote about him in my last book and body of work. He's couldn't be more opposite temperament wise. He was a big introvert. I'm a raging extrovert first on the dance floor, shake anybody's hand. My dad was more the very quiet but very studied kind of a person that always did really quiet community building in every situation that he was in and i grew up seeing him have community events and be tap dancing and doing art shows and just had that feeling of what it's like in particularly in place, in the town where my parents split when I was really young, when I was about five. So in the town where my dad and my bonus mom, Dee, live, it's a real small town. And just having that feeling of place and like really knowing your neighbors was really an important part of my shaping as a community builder.
0: In a world that involves staring at screens and Zoom boxes, it is easy to forget the simple pleasures and the closeness that comes from being in physical spaces together being on a main street of a small town.
1: I am a writer and a coach and the co-founder for about the last five years with my husband, Daryl, of a community space that has a main focus of really supporting small business, in particular, Black, Indigenous, people of color, entrepreneurs. But really, when I look at this particular role and like being I'm here physically in the building right now in the learning lab it is in the last five years that probably is the most essential part of myself as I look at everything that I have done is being somebody who is deeply moved and connected with community and then I'm a mom and have a wonderful husband as well so I'm a big family person
0: now you know I do have that a bit on my street in Toronto my main street is called Roncesvalles And when I walk up the street and I go to DaFina, my local pizza place, I'm known there and I'm greeted and I'm welcomed and I know the menu. It is a great experience. I go there in part for the connection. But I've only been in Toronto for 20 years. And there's another reason why physical place matters deeply to Pam. Her husband and her children are First Nation Navajo.
1: The root of of it, really, the reason why we open the space, my husband is Navajo, so First Nation Navajo and really the inspiration and the root of opening it was really to be highlighting the leadership that exists within the native business community but also especially other amazing folks who are have amazing talent but often aren't visible and so it really is the central mission is to be a space, a physical space, that we are smack dab in the middle of Main Street. <laughs> we we always say we're like Main Streets everywhere, because whether it's called Main Street or the name of the town, it, it's sort of a thing where you know in the middle of Main Street, there I have a cookie shop on one side, I have a motorcycle shop on the other. And it just is to be a physical space where people can come in, walk in off the street, and In many cases in many main streets everywhere, I'll speak in the US, that a lot of folks don't feel comfortable, don't feel safe, don't feel welcome, don't feel seen, heard, and valued. So that really is the primary I think that's the primary thing that drives me.
0: Now I think of Pam as a political person who has opinions and takes a stand on things. And she's brilliant when it comes to not just building community, but fostering real movement, getting things done. I wanted to ask her what the relationship between the two might be.
1: It's an essential part of movement work is our mutual friend, my best friend, Desiree Attaway, mm-hmm. who has it's been awesome. my best friend since I was the wee age of 18. We met in college. I- and
0: whose daughter has been on the podcast.
1: Oh, wonderful. Jordan, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Jordan.
0: Yeah, she's fantastic. <laughs> She read from a graphic novel. So the first person who's read from a graphic novel, and we had a wonderful conversation. So yeah.
1: I love that. That's so Jordan. But Desiree often talks about it, who does really, that is her life's work in particular is racial Mm. equity work. And a lot of the way she'll describe it is being highly relational as opposed to transactional. So talking about being transactional with systems, I am fascinated by systems, by connections in particular, systems that can either uplift and support or oppress and repress. And so we can be very analytical transactional with systems of saying like, yeah, there's a huge pay equity gap. Yes, there are absolutely broken hiring practices that actively discriminate. But when it comes to doing the work with people within the system is being Mm. relational in that way, there is that foundation of values, of ethics, of really having an approach to looking at doing the work that Mm. involves to me a very deep level of self-awareness, of being able to practice every element of growth mindset, being open-minded, not taking things personally, but yeah. also really feeling the humanity in others in order to really do this work. It's just an essential part.
0: Such an important connection. You know, being able to understand how change happens at a systemic level is critical. Yeah. But it can also feel overwhelming, which is like it's beyond me and it's an inhuman thing. That's what systems are really. And you're making that connection between the humanity of community, how it feeds movement that can actually change the inhumanity of systemic issues.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, as a coach, <laughs> any is listening, all day, every day, right? We're trying to find ways to mm. help people reconstruct, build, create things that are bigger and systemic, but doing it through that very human experience. Yeah. Of creative motivation and getting ourselves aware of the story that we're telling ourselves about it, the way we understand the importance of making the change, the way that we feel motivated to move forward. Mm. All of that is that essence of emotional connection and for some people, spiritual connection to the work itself.
0: Pam, your new book is called The Widest Net, which is almost a Paradox in my brain, because, you know, you're like, I am a champion for local. (laughs) I'm a champion for Main Street. Like here I am in my my office and I've got a cookie shop on one side and a motorcycle shop on the other. And the widest net feels not local. But I suspect I'm reading it wrong. What's the connection between your commitment to this kind of local and commitment to community and this idea of the widest net?
1: I'm glad the title worked because (laughs) it's supposed to make you turn your head slightly. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah. One common interpretation would be the widest net is in casting a net to then bring all the fish into you. Yeah. The way I really visualize it, and it can be many things to many people, honestly, in the way that people interpret it. But Mm. to me, it's actually the widest net of connection, of support, Mm. of really looking expansively at how many people are actually in alignment often with that kind of thing that we want to do and having a feeling that no matter what happens when we're in this work together, we have each other's back. I won't let you fall. I'm here to pick you up. So it is a visualization in many ways of always where I was just telling my kids the other day, when I was really little, I used to climb up on my roof. We had this old house, old for California, built in 1906 but I used to climb on the roof and look at the stars and just have this feeling of expansiveness Mm. and really like this connection. And it is expansive connection. The connection is deeply personal and can be deeply local, but the feeling it has is very much like wide. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) to to use a a word from the title.
0: (laughs) Yeah, beautiful. Look, I know we're going to come back to talk a bit more about the book, but tell me about the book you're choosing to read from.
1: I am choosing to read from a book that saved my writer's life when I was <laughs> writing my first book, Escape from Cubicle Nation, and that is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Yeah,
0: such a good it book.
1: keeps its place on my shelf so many years later, whenever I need it, every time I come back to it. It's very nourishing.
0: What was it? You know what? I think that's probably the introduction we need. I was going to ask you to tell me a bit more about the book, but you've said it all, which is like... <laughs> Trying to write, which is for anybody who's an author, you already know the misery of trying to write a book. And for anybody who's not an author, however bad you think it is, it's worse Mm -hmm. than that. There's moments of doubt and confusion. But it's not actually, this is a book that's not just about writing, it's about feeling stuck in your life Mm. and finding ways to get unstuck around that. So there's so much that's good in this book because it's one of my favorites as well. How did you choose what pages to read?
1: It was hard because there are so many different (laughs) passages. When I had it with me, when I was writing Escape from Cubicle Nation, I would just flip to a page and I would just see what Anne decided to tell me at that particular (laughs) moment, (laughs) like a tarot deck or something. And that's kind of how I feel about it. So I looked at it from the lens, just having come through the vortex of writing, of looking at two passages that kind of show both sides of the writing experience.
0: Yes. So it's yeah,
1: contextual to what I've lived through that I thought might be a little bit more germane <laughs> for its applicability to now.
0: I love that. And I love the thought of like using Annie Lamott's wisdom as a kind of tarot deck. It's like, I'll just flip it up and see what strikes a chord for me today. Well, Look, let me introduce you here. So Pam Slim, author of a number of books, including her latest, The Widest Net, is reading from Annie Lamott's classic book about 25 years old it came out 2007 bird by bird over to you Pam
1: this is our goal as writers i think to help others have this sense of please forgive me wonder of seeing things anew things that can catch us off guard that break in on our small bordered worlds when this happens everything feels more spacious. Try walking around with a child who's going, wow, wow, look at that dirty dog. Look at that burned down house. Look at that red sky. And the child points and you look and you see and you start going, wow, look at that crazy hedge. Look at that teeny little baby. Look at that scary dark cloud. I think this is how we are supposed to be in the world—present and in awe. Taped to the wall above my desk is a wonderful poem by the Persian mystic Rumi. God's joy moves from unmarked box to unmarked box, from cell to cell, as rainwater down into flowerbed, as roses up from ground. Now it looks like a plate of rice and fish now a cliff covered with vines, now a horse being saddled. It hides within these till one day it cracks them open.
0: That's amazing. What about that passage rings true for you, Pam?
1: It is the expansive place of creation, the perspective and point of view in the rare moments when I'm able to enter it as a writer, (laughs) and let me just underline the rare, there really is a feeling of altered dimension. So both Mm. in the writing process, I can feel it physiologically. When I enter into that space, I can feel my whole body shift It really does feel sometimes like going into another dimension. And I love the way she's describing the heightened sense of awareness, that sense of connection, the way that you begin to notice things. And so, as a writer in the writing process, that's always that place that I'm wanting to get to. And as somebody who writes books for others, it is also the kind of place that i want my readers to connect to as they're mm. reading a story as they feel seen and heard as they have some kind of an insight or maybe they laugh over a passage like <laughs> i know i've laughed at many in this book yeah it is both experiencing and then creating those really special altered state spaces through writing
0: how do you connect to the wonder of the world because it's so easy to get distracted by just the miscellaneous BS of life.
1: Yeah, I feel like I've just always been connected to the wonder of the world. It just is the way that I see the <laughs> world and I think that that is the way that I was nurtured as a child. My mm. dad was a photographer mm. and spending time with him in the dark room, in particular, like looking through the lens of you know, his camera, We would often, back in the days when we used to use buckets of chemicals in order to process photos, we would look at images emerge, we would be playing with light and he would show me different Mm. ways that you can use light, dodge and burn and, you know, make different shadows happen all before Photoshop. But even after Photoshop, just looking at his perspective, the way that I saw him looking at the world, there always was this sense of... Wonder that really was all the way through his life until the end of mm. his life. That's one of the gifts that was so big that he gave me. Is I never heard him saying, like, oh, goddamn job, you know, oh man, <laughs> you know, I have to do this. Like, and yeah, he was so appreciative of being able to do that work. So that's part of it. And then the other part, I've made some really bad choices in my life. I've also made really good choices, <laughs> <laughs> choosing my husband was a really good choice and okay. for him being a traditional medicine person who really practices every day just in his being as he always says it's not a religion it's just a way of life mm. there's so many different kind of ways of life and practices that he brings into our home that just helps i think all of us slow down connect with the earth stop listen to the birds feel the sun on your face and mm. that Makes a really big difference for me of having people yes. around me who are modeling that.
0: And we're lucky enough to have Daryl as one of the teachers in the Year of Living Brilliantly as well. Yes. So for those listeners who haven't yet kind of checked out the Year of Living Brilliantly, you can see that at mbs.works. And Daryl's right in the middle. He's like literally the 26th teacher of the 52 because his teaching is quiet and profound and grounding mm-hmm. and centering, just as Pam. Is mentioning. What have you learned about being a writer, Pam? You're into your third book. Mm-hmm. How has your sense of yourself and your sense of the craft evolved and changed?
1: I feel humbled through this last book because I thought it should be easier by book number three. <laughs> I really Damn did it. It. <laughs> <laughs> didn't I earn an easier experience? No, it Part of it, I think, was writing in the middle of a pandemic. I know Mm. many fellow writers that I've talked to. It does feel like every single one of our friends we've ever known who has written, wrote just like I did. There's a slew of books coming out, which is wonderful. But it really, I have such appreciation and admiration for, on one hand, how challenging it is to get the right balance of being present, being tuned in noticing patterns, like waiting for, I always have this feeling for every book that there's this vague outline. There's like first this little whisper of an idea Mm. that comes. And then I start to get these vague outlines, go through this super frustrating period where I don't really see how they work. Nobody gets (laughs) it. I was just telling the story the other day of you, like when I had an early stage connection with my prior publisher for this book. And I think I was crying in the cab. You know, I called you right away from New York, you know, <laughs> when they rejected me because they didn't get the idea. And, yeah. you know, it was like so frustrating. There's this hard part of it that is trying to understand the what I need to do as a person in order mm. to best like call the book in and mm-hmm. understand conceptually how it is that that whole transformational journey of a book is supposed to happen. Right. And there's dimensions of it I think in writing books today, which is first of all nobody reads books. It's yes. really hard to get people to read a book from beginning <laughs> to end. So hard. Really yeah. hard. And so and for myself included as a reader. So we need to write it as a writer where there is an arc and there is an interconnection, but to mm-hmm. me it's also thinking about each chapter and really each section being something that could be highly useful and applicable. So there's that part of it. And then for the part of it of recognizing the craft of writing, I'm not formally trained as a writer. I always call myself an author practitioner. Like I started (laughs) writing, writing my blog as a way really to build my business and share my ideas. And I've always loved writing, but I'm humbled by how much I don't know and how hard it is sometimes technically to go in and actually do the work. That Mm. said, I do appreciate and acknowledge that it is something that is a gift that I have of after thrashing around for five or six years (laughs) with (laughs) the idea of a book, that when I do bring it together in something more like a cohesive narrative, It is something that is useful to help people take action. And that's the kind of thing I'm very appreciative of now that it's out of my head.
0: I love that phrase you said around calling the book in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that gathering that finally tips into some sort of critical mass that turns into the heart of the idea. Can you tell me a bit more about how you call a book in?
1: Yeah. The first way is in recognizing that there's maybe a core idea that is more than a blog post, essentially, Mm. (laughs) that something, you know, starts to come over and over where I notice myself talking with people about something or using a particular metaphor. I go back, I think I was talking about watering holes and ecosystems and way back in escape. As I start to look back, I have to do a complete search of my writing, but (laughs) this particular idea was one that was like, way yeah. back i started to talk about so there's just a very practical component where i find myself sharing something over and over and then recognizing mm. that there probably are components that i don't really understand then there are there's really a practical way of working with the ideas with my mm. clients that's the author practitioner yeah yeah i wish i could just be cute and pithy and sometimes and come up with an idea that everybody's like <laughs> that's the greatest big idea ever and sell a million copies like some yeah. people do I have to actually know that the ideas work in the real world with real people because I write books for my clients and for the general audience that I'm writing the book for. Mm. And that it is a blessing. It is for sure. But it can feel like a curse sometimes because there's just the like writing and reconnecting. Yeah. For this book in particular, there was an element that I, I had felt before, but I didn't really feel that was brought to life when I visited my dear friend Hiro Boga, who Mm -hmm. is an amazing teacher, spiritual teacher. I was actually doing some work with her for her business. And I spent a couple of days with her in her home. And as we were working on her business and her approach to things, her traditions come from India originally, as as does she. And she was giving an example to me of what she calls calling in the deva of your book. So really that spirit of your book and her spiritual context and way she sees the world that is a spiritual thing. So she did a practice with me where i was sitting down, you know, in a chair. It was, I felt so lucky
0: <laughs>
1: to be with her because I have so much admiration. And she was just sharing an, an example of how one might like call in the Deva of the book, because mm. I was having that weird feeling of like, like this person you see in a crowd and they're almost there, but then they run away and then you almost yeah, see them.
0: Exactly. And
1: so she helped really ground me and just sit with my hand, my palms facing the ceiling and really call in the Deva of that book to say, I'm ready for you. And it was a very deep, profound, beautiful experience. I really felt that and something definitely shifted from that point in terms of my Mm. ability to write the book.
0: That's a great story. And I love that kind of visceral act of like, (laughs) I'm summing in a spirit here. Yes, There's something out there that I need to stop chasing quite as hard and allow to kind of come to me rather than me run after it. Yeah. So what is the idea at the heart of the widest net?
1: The way I describe the big basic idea of the book is a lot of the way that we're trained to, especially build a business, which is Mm. the business I'm in every day, is very much within a model of empire building, And there's all kinds of historical context. There's all kinds of connection with things that we've talked about before, white supremacy culture, imperialism, paternalistic Mm -hmm. culture. There's a lot of that that is really, really prevalent and celebrated within business Mm -hmm. culture. And we actually use terms like building an empire and have as a central idea of that model that it is our job to be really looking at centering ourselves as the sole expert, as the person who has the answer to something that if I want to do that, then I have to, first of all, not share anything with you because Michael might, you know, steal my ideas or somebody might do find my out best that he's smarter than me <laughs> or, you know, cuter as a better podcast, whatever, which is all true, but then <laughs> So in that view, it very much centers like you pull yourself up from the bootstraps. You were the mm. one person and you need to share this view with the world that it's about mm. bringing people to you and centering yourself in the widest net. I believe what is more true for the my life and for the life of many of my clients is where you really put your customer in the center. And Mm. our customers who we work with in a variety of different ways, whether we're selling them a product or a service, they already have created an ecosystem. There's a whole ecosystem around them of service providers and events that support Mm. them and products and sometimes, you know, formal nonprofit or government programs that are all really aligned in helping them to solve their problem. And so to me, if I'm going to build a business I would rather be part of this ecosystem, really understand who are these players and then right. strategically look at how it is that I can be building alliances and finding what I call watering holes, places mm. where other people have already gathered great amounts of perfect you know, clients and customers where I can be connecting there. And it's just, it has a wider net. In that case, there's yeah. more possibility. So I think it's a more strategic way to build a business. But I also think it's, more accurate. And one of the Hmm. benefits of being in business for 25 years, first as a management consultant for 10 years in Silicon Valley, and then the last 15 as a startup coach, is I've really seen under the hood and behind the scenes of a lot of stuff. And it is not true that one person or one founder or a couple co-founders are the only ones that really create a business. There can be really very problematic things that happen in terms of erasing the contribution of people who are helping to build things. And then that reinforces an untrue idea that also reinforces injustice. And so it goes pretty deep for me in terms of why it's important to have an alternative.
0: So I'm the type of person who typically is not decentered, but is quite centered in the middle of things in terms of how power works. You know, I'm a founder, I'm a successful author, successful-ish author, not to mention the kind of assorted privilege of white, male, straight, all of that stuff. I have a pretty full set of cards. Mm -hmm. How do you help somebody like me think about decentering rather than holding onto the center?
1: Everything is about an analysis of the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So when you look at your emerging body of work, right? You've gone through different stages for, you know, a big part of how I knew you, it was box of crayons and really being centered right now you're shifting into doing different work. So depending on that stage of work that you're doing, each person, including yourself, has a specific role that you're analyzing when you look at how you're bringing your gifts and skills to that kind of change you're trying Mm -hmm. to make to that kind of transformation you're trying to contribute to. There is a specific role that you have. And part of it in analyzing the dynamics is just knowing fundamentally, right? You're not the only one. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm not sure how you would describe these days, like what interesting challenges that you're wanting to solve or aspirations you're helping people reach. And if you have that like right at your Well
0: I talk about it as I want to help people be a force for change. Okay. That's the the vision for MBS.works, which is the kind of the new more individual centered business.
1: I love it. I love it. So given that, it's a perfect example of a mission. When you look at really what it takes for people to be a force for change and to fully feel Mm -hmm. that. First of all, I'm thinking about who that might be. Like, who's in your right. audience? It's probably a whole range of people that come from mm-hmm. your lived experience, and not. It's going to take so many different players in order to really make that work happen. And there's the craft right. of the work, as you understand, what hmm. really is that? What are the details of the change? What are the different components? And within that, where is a place where I can play a very important part? Yeah, and. So within that then you can see that connection of okay and I know that I need to be connecting with people who have studied movements for years, with people who are understanding how change happens in different components of change in different communities. Yeah. By definition, you are part of a system that's making that change, which mm. is just decentering you. Yeah. And then within that, you can look at how your specific identity might play in different spaces and where there is a role. Because again, in a highly relational way, it's not saying that us as individuals or as businesses don't have a specific role to play. What most people do is say, I am now the chain movement change maker, (laughs) and I am the only one and come learn my method and you can learn it all from me. That's where things start to get skewed. Mm because it's not true, as opposed to everybody knowing, oh my gosh, for this particular part of really feeling empowered and fired up to make change, you need to listen to Michael's podcast or attend his workshop or whatever things that you're offering.
0: I mean, I understand the need to invite others in to contribute to the work, just in terms of an scale and have the impact that I would dream of having.
1: Yeah,
0: I can't do it all by myself because the older I get, the clearer my limitations and all sorts of ways are. There's still a way that I can do those things that you said to do. And I still think of myself as being at the heart of it or at the top of it.
1: Mm.
0: Is that just part of being a founder, which is like, look, I'm always going to be the founder, the source of it. Or I think maybe the question I'm trying to ask is, Where do you see people trying to hold on to things that they might be able to let go of?
1: I see it in, it's in a lens. It's kind of the lens Mm. and the point of view that you have for the work. And when you Mm. look at it in the context of each of our lives and each of our work, when you're looking through the lens of me putting a spotlight at you and your everyday life and the work that you're doing, you are you have ideas, you're coordinating, you're creating that work. So if you think that is the only lens of what it is that you're doing, then that's all you're going to see. As soon as you expand out and you see within Mm. this work that you're doing, there also are these neighbors and people across the way and across the world who are doing it as well. Then you can recognize that I am actively doing my part in the work. And so as a person who is a creator, I am creating, connecting and, doing my piece, if that makes sense. So that idea is one that not everybody embraces. And that's okay, right? It's a point of view, like any kind of perspective and point of view somebody has about doing work. For some people, that's not really going to be a comfortable, you know, approach. To me, where we get stuck, myself included, is in staying stuck to the role we think that we need to play, or as we understand more, like who are other people who are doing it, and sometimes doing it better, or there's a yeah. time and a place sometimes for doing a certain kind of work that then you need to shift, is holding on to it from an ego perspective. And that can okay. be like, these doggone whippersnappers, you know, coming into <laughs> this space, like I've been here for so many years, who do they think they are? <laughs> Getting really right. grumbly about what you think yeah. you should be doing, as opposed to really letting the work itself, and especially the people you're working with, help guide you about where is this place where I know when I'm in that yeah. place, like you can feel like that heightened superpowers activating. You really know that you're in the zone. Mm. The work itself is the thing that helps guide you. If it's just your own itself. ego, that's yeah. the part where we all get lost.
0: It's really helpful. This idea of coming back to the, the work itself and the purpose of the work and asking in effect, you know, what best serves this work? And what's my role in that rather than what best serves me (laughs) and my role in this?
1: That's right. And I mean, it's a combination, right? I mean, you need to, you want to be engaged in the work that you do. And there is a part that is important, but there's a really key concept in, you know, in the model, which is to create a beacon. So within, once you have that bigger context and you understand, you know, who all the players are and what people are doing, there's your own creation of a beacon, something that's a very specific way in which Mm. you're communicating your point of view, your tools, your methods, you know, that needs to be really dialed in. Again, that's our craft. That's the way that we choose what it is that we're going to create. So there's definitely a place for it. I'm glad you asked the question because a lot of people can say like, well, then, you know, do I not matter at all? And, you know, like, what is my role in all this? You have a very important role but first in the context of who else is out there.
0: Yeah. You know, in the new book, I've got brewing. I talk about claim ambition for yourself and for the world. And I think there's a connection there perhaps, which is like, it's about you and it's also about the work. Yeah, And you need to find the balance around that. Pam, as always, as thoroughly expected, there's been a wonderful conversation. So thank you. As a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me today?
1: Hmm. I don't, I mean, I don't think a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we got to the heart of a lot. It's funny whenever there is, you know, a new book or a a new concept, Hmm. I think kind of in the world of ideas, as we're talking about creation and the context of what we were just mentioning of like finding your place in the work that you're doing and finding a voice for that work, who your audience is, is so tremendously important. So Mm. in being very deliberate about like, who really am I creating this work for can allow you to make a whole series of different kinds of decisions than it will when you're not thinking about that question. And so I think about it from the writing itself. And just, I know for Mm -hmm. me, the influence I've had in the doing work in a very intersectional way, you know, in a live in-person local setting, and then also virtual, my favorite question is who is we? (laughs) So we're (laughs) like, well, we should do this. You know, it's like, who is we and who is they, when you're thinking about audience, that particular answering that question and understanding that for yourself can help solve and address Mm -hmm. a lot of the other questions that you might have about like, what's my role? What's important? It can look very differently about what your role could be depending upon who it is that's in your audience or within your, you know, your customer circle.
0: So tell me who the audience is for the widest net. Who have you written that book for?
1: I have really written it for my clients and the general characteristic of my clients so who really my clients are people who do have ideas about making a significant change in the world so they're practitioners they're people who have and it can be anybody from like an artist that's very passionate about bringing their work into the world to many people i work with as service professionals where they are you know data scientists or lawyers or doctors that have a particular point of view but also people who might operate a business like one of our local businesses here, you know, a coffee shop that has a particular point of view of somebody really wanting to create an experience that is yep. really significant and different through their business. And mm. somebody who is like passionate about helping it grow and be financially sustainable, but who also really wants it to happen in a way that is highly relational where they don't feel like they're like turning off their heart and then just marketing and selling where they can really like be themselves, build a thriving business, like expand opportunities, but not move into a position of feeling like they're very transactional and dehumanized. It's that person. It's not, yeah, like a certain level of business. I mean, I do tend to work with a lot of people that might already have things like books or, you know, audiences in my day-to-day coaching It's been really fascinating to see that so many of the methods and ideas I've used also with people who might have a much different kind of business idea that's very hyper-local, but the ideas work where they want to have human connection.
0: Here's what remains with me after this conversation, hands and feet. Let me explain Hands, because I think they represent who and how you might serve. That's really so much the essence of Pam's work. And it speaks to Pam's commitment to find the right person to serve, to help, and to enable. The power of knowing who you are in service to. You know, I think that almost transcends the why that Simon Sinek talks about. I mean, you might find your why, but it becomes real when you connect your why to your who. And feet... Because I think that represents where you stand, literally and metaphorically. I mean, in other episodes, we've talked a little bit about the loneliness and isolations. That's you know, something of a dark tide rising at the moment. But I do think one way to provide light is to connect and to build locally. Now, if you want to find out more about Pam and her work, go to PamelaSlim.com, where you'll find out about her new book as well, which is, as I say, I think the best of her books, and she's written some great books. But this is really about how do you just get grounded in terms of who you best serve and how you might best serve them. I'm rereading it. I've got to see an early version of it. I'm rereading it now because I'm still trying to figure that out for me a little bit. And if you like this conversation with Pam, I've got a couple of other episodes I'd recommend to you. One is Jordan Dinwiddie. We actually mentioned that a bit in the interview because Jordan is the daughter of Pam's best friend. But Jordan, in her own right, is a brilliant copywriter, rising star in her agency. She read from a graphic novel, which was a really cool experience. And that episode is called How to Be 100% Yourself. And I thought the other person you might like to listen to is my interview with Tamsin Webster. That episode is called Empathy and Argument. Tamsin constructed this idea of your red thread identity and a very powerful way to understand how your stories are an essential part of who you are and how you show up in this world. Another thing I mentioned in the call, because Pam's husband, Daryl, is part of this, is The Year of Living Brilliantly. If you haven't discovered that yet, go to mbs.works. The Year of Living Brilliantly is a free year-long course, 52 Brilliant Teachers, one short video every week to teach, to provoke, to explain. It's a wonderful experience, I think. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving this podcast a review if you've done that. Thank you for passing an episode on if it struck a chord for you. The best way we grow is by word of mouth, so I'm grateful for any help you can give me with that. If you want a little bit more, we have the Duke Humphreys, which is a free membership site. You can just sign up there and you'll get access to interviews that haven't been released, transcripts if you like to look at transcripts, and also a couple of downloads that I created around favorite books for me. Thank you. You're awesome and you're doing great.